Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 49. My name is Joseph Darnell. I'm joined by the one doctor on the show, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing a-okay. Beautiful day. Finally stopped raining. I went running today. Did 5K. Just late this afternoon. Went and visited you. Attached something onto your beehive. You didn't tell me about the run? That's amazing. Yeah, that, tell me all well, that's about That's why it. I showed up. I was all sweaty and I was in my... My shorts and my t-shirt in a 60-degree weather, and my hair is all messy. Yeah, running. Okay, well, that's awesome. I knew that you wanted to get back into it. Was this the first one in forever? Um, yeah, because I had started biking because it got warm. So basically, I can't run if it's over 75, especially 80 degrees. That's just too hot for me. And I can't bike if it's under 60 because, well, it's cold. So I do the opposite. I run in the, su- run in the winter and bike in the summer. Okay, good. That's a good regimen. It's all about thermodynamics, man. I, me, I just like to use the gym all year round, but I do like the outdoors, but for recreational purposes, you know, we do in this day, we don't need to go anywhere, but we actually go outdoors and climb over cliffs and we get stung and we get poison ivy for fun. Oh, yeah. You know, recreation in the spring and summer. Yeah, chiggers, hooray for chiggers. Ticks. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. But good times. My kids are like the what is it called where it's called like the something challenge the the knockout challenge it's something crazy where you have an obstacle course you run through cow patties and climb walls and you get repelled and then you you get splashed with sudsy soap do you do you know what i'm talking about you feel really powerful you feel like you've accomplished something because you ran around in a cow pasture yeah and there's thousands of people there and they're all sweaty and so the whole field smells <laughs> We were talking about Bradford pear trees. They have nothing on body odor. Oh, I can imagine. I do commend anyone who cares about their physical fitness, including you, Rob. I think that is very noble of you. Hey, Joe, you remember how I was saying that the bees are having an issue this year because of weather and we might get a late delivery of our bee packages? Yeah, it's been weird. The weather's been rough. My phone is lighting up right now, just literally right this second. The bee guy in Cartersville wrote, writes, uh, texts, just to let everyone know that the pickup date has been changed to the evening of April the 6th. Whoa, that's a couple Hope of weeks off. Put you any inconvenience. If there is a problem, let me know. So this is an awesome guy. I love this guy. He's doing a good job. And so I'm not going to complain. But yeah, that's two weeks later. And oh, man. So we're going to miss half a spring. At least it's not May. That would be a disaster. But it also means that I will be here when we get the bees. Hey, hey, hey. You don't have to install my bees. <laughs> that's good i'm relieved i mean i want to do it with you i i figure i should shadow you and see what you do and then go home and do mine yeah and th- that would make me more comfortable yeah or we're just doing both of them together because we'll probably be learning too i've only done this about 12 times so well that's too bad but it's also good to know that we haven't lost our bees altogether or something like that due to adverse weather conditions it looks like he has 13 customers getting box of bees I'm proud to be one of those. Oh, no, you don't, you're not superstitious, are you? 13? Oh, are bees superstitious? Uh, excuse me, sir. I am a triskaidekaphiliac. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> I do not have triskaidekaphobia, which is fear of the number 13. I turned 13 on Friday the 13th. And from that day forward, I said 13 is my number. That is a good reason. I have the love of the number 13. And there are many of us in the world, actually. There's probably a Facebook group or two dedicated to this, but I know I've looked this up before and there are other people who love 13, like me. (laughs) That's pretty cool. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, then it must be a good omen. Our bees are going to be extra special. That's right. You could call your queen number 13. I mean, we have to name our queen, right? Um, am, I, am I wrong about this? I mean, come on. I, I, I have all the feels for my bees, even though I haven't met them yet. Okay, this is one step beyond me. I have never named my bees or my bee colony. This is the nation of whatever. No, I've never even thought of it. Okay. Well, workshop it, though. Yeah, we could. You, know, you are a scientist. You're an inventor. You can work on this. We could. I, could, I almost named the hawks and the crows that are in my neighborhood. We had this uh, gaggle. What's a, what's a crow? Not a murder. Uh, uh, whatever. A cadre of crows. What's a, a group of crows called? I know this and I forget. A squawk? No. And it's been in our neighborhood for forever. So it was usually in the neighbor's house across the street. They're up in the pine trees. And we have these hawks that have been flying by my house for the three years that I've lived here. And today they got in a turf war. I actually videoed it. I recorded it. It was unbelievable. They're catapulting and somersaulting through the trees at eye level to me because I'm a you know, second floor back porch. Golly. And they're flying between houses and, and fighting. And they're racketing for like four hours. There's, the crows are just going on and on and on. And the, the hawks are doing a hawk sound and flying and then flying away and coming back again. And at one point they landed, one of them landed on a tree right across the street. I'm like, is that a nest? Or is that just a squirrel nest? Because there are two other squirrel nests in that tree, but that's different. And I think they might be putting a nest there. And I don't think the crows like it. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah, no. it was a really exciting day today. Very interesting. I'm glad I was working from home to be able to witness all this. This has been a pretty unusual year, but this is a silver lining. The, I think anything, any time we can work outdoors has been a pleasure, a real treat. I'm going to miss it. Yes. I know sooner or later we're going to be back in the office, and so I'm going to miss days out on the porch. Yes. They've been nice. Uh, we mentioned previously on the show that we have Bradford pear trees. You may remember they're kind of smelly. Yes. And we said that I, I said that there were bees on them. Yes. Then Rob visited and he saw the bees and he said that they were sweat bees. And I realized at that same time. Because they're smaller than normal honeybees and they're skinnier. Yeah. And they're all over the trees. I mean, there's tons of them. Okay, go ahead. What'd you learn? So I don't know much about sweat bees. I, I hadn't heard about them before this season. You mentioned them. And then uh, an old acquaintance of mine on Instagram was taking pictures of these what do you call it? little mounds, like little burrows of bugs in the ground that you might see from ants or yellow jackets, if you know what those bugs are. And he was saying, are these sweat bees? And he had like the, these bees buzzing in and out. Then I heard about them somewhere on the internet. Yeah, it was because I found a video where a guy claimed, a beekeeper up in North Georgia, that the Bradford pear trees are in bloom, as you can see in his video, but there aren't any honeybees that are at all attracted to them. So he was saying, you might see some sweat bees out here. Well, I, I, I wanted to know what the sweat bees were exactly. Rob, you were saying you're not terribly familiar with them, right? Yeah, only these are little bees that you come buzz around your face in the summertime and are a little annoying. And I only ran into them when I moved to Georgia in the 80s. I've seen them, you know, 100 times probably, but I don't know anything about them. I don't know if they're colonial or solitary or ground nesters or I don't think they grow honey, but I, I don't know anything about them. It's curious. The sweat bee example. So I 
first I want to comment on the B that you're talking about, the ones that would buzz around your head. Yeah. I grew, I grew up here and I, I don't know if you're describing the same thing, but I've seen these little guys that resemble bees, but they're, they're like the size of a housefly. Yeah. Tiny little things, which makes me think as we were talking this afternoon that I was wrong when I called the things on the Brad Repair Swippies. I don't know what they are. Okay. Okay. Well, well the, the, the plot thickens because oh. the, the little guy I was told, you know, growing up, that it was actually some kind of fly that happens to look like a bee. Okay. And it uses that to its advantage to scare potential people <laughs> away because we will think that it's got a stinger. Okay. Is it? I don't know anything about it. I just took people's word for it. Ah. Now, now, when I Googled this and I found some examples, I found some videos, I found some articles about what sweet bees were, there's actually, it, it gets even more confusing because apparently sweat bees are, according to sources, on every continent and they come in different colors. Oh. But their behavior is basically all the same. Okay. So they live in the burrows in the ground and they're interested in human sweat for the salt. Okay. They need it for their, you know, their biolo- their biology. They got to have that salt. So they typically don't sting, but then if you talk to some people, you see some form examples there are people who are going to say I've been stung by them and it hurt like the dickens. Hmm. And then you find other sources that say on the pain index, it's actually the mildest sting of all the bugs, like lesser than any of them. Okay. It's sort of like a carpenter bee. The mm-hmm. One of them will not sting you. The other one, I, I think it's uh, the males or females. I don't remember which is which. One's got a white dot. One doesn't. And I used to know this very well because I used to t- teach this in class. Now I'm going to get all confused in my head. But one of them won't sting you. The other one will sting you if you really provoke it. Interesting. And I suppose it hurts a lot, but well, I've never done it, so I don't know. And among the sweat bees, it's the female that does have a stinger. Okay. But in any case, the, the people were saying they, they don't want to sting people. So I don't know why that is. Sounds like I'd like to have a sweat bee as a pet. Okay. So were the bees on the Bradford Paris sweat bees or not? Inconclusive. Because I, <sighs> in all the examples that I saw online... None of them really looked quite like those guys around the Bradford Pear, but you, did you get a good look at any of them? They were moving so fast, I honestly didn't see right. I didn't see a good example. No, they were really moving fast. And even though there's lots of them, I just know they're smaller and skinnier than a honeybee. Mm-hmm. So if anybody listening to this can make sense of this conversation, what I'm getting at is that we have four Bradford Pear trees, and we saw what resembled bees, but they were just too skinny to be honeybees. Then anecdotally, there are beekeepers who say that honeybees are not at all interested in them. But then other beekeepers have said that because the Bradford pear trees do bloom earlier in the season, if the honeybees need it, they will gather nectar sources from the Bradford pears. Well, as sense. soon as they can find something else, they move on because they prefer better things, better fruit. The Bradford pears are um, somewhat prickly, so they're, they're not crazy about it. Well, they also stink. I mean, what kind of honey would that make? Would you consider like it make a stink honey? Well, I would agree, except uh, like, you know, we were talking about kudzu. It kind of makes the honey taste grapey. It even changes a little hint of purple. That's, that's what I've heard. I haven't seen it yet. But uh, again, I, I don't know if this is right. You know, maybe these people are absolutely, you know, you can't trust anything on the internet these days. No. I'm just saying that somebody said, and I quote, you'd think that the honey's tastes terrible because well the flowers stink but it actually isn't that bad tastes like honey (laughs) okay very good all righty we shall find maybe one day we'll find out if anybody has the answers let us know well now that we're talking about bees again 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 and insects again 
we must correct something that I said on the bee podcast. One of my friends who's a, an amateur beekeeper also said, Rob, you made a mistake. I said, what? He said, when you said you can't necessarily put chemicals into the hive because the bees and the bee pests are all insects, that's not true. I said, oh, I forgot. You're right. The varroa mite is a mite, not an insect. It's an arachnid. It's got eight legs, not six. Is that really the only difference? As a kid, that was cool and acceptable, but now that I'm an adult, it doesn't sound like it's enough to make a difference in a, you know, between an arachnid and an insect and a bug. You know, Just the number of legs? This might be a phylum-level difference. Mm. might be a class-level difference. They say it's class insecta. If not, yeah, it's a phylum-level difference. They're arthropods, but they're not insects. So they're very different from one another, genetically and morphologically. So are we talking like the difference, uh, a level of difference between dogs and cats? Like they both have tails, they both have snouts, they both have four paws, but you know they're clearly different species. They're completely different kinds. No, we're talking about the difference between dogs and earthworms. Whoa, okay. That's a difference, all right. Why do they look so much alike? Yeah, good question. There's other problem also. We call these things bugs. They're not bugs. Bugs is a very specific thing. A bed bug is a bug. A water bug, well, you know, those water, um, those black things that zip around on top of streams. Water strider. Ma- not a water strider. Oh. But a water bug. Okay. A bug has biting mouth parts. Uh, mosquitoes. Beetles. Flies. Beetles. Those are not bugs. Huh. We call them bugs because we like colloquialisms. Yeah. But it's actually not true. So forgive me, world, for calling mites insects. I should have known better. And now I do. I think that that's pretty forgivable. It's easy enough. The other thing about bees was that I think you pointed out in your research and when we were talking about the bee species that there are thousands of them. Then in the example of uh, one of the sources I was looking at today, they were saying that they're considered to be tens of thousands of them because they actually classify like a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of things are considered bees, including ants in a species scientific category, which I kind of think is a bit of a stretch. They're in, they're in, they're in hymenoptera. Okay. They have uh, membranous wings. Yeah, okay. But that's it. That's, but that's like saying hum, humans are animals. We're a completely separate creation. Okay. But we, we are animals by classification. We're mammals by classification. We're primates by classification. Okay. Yeah. But we're, we're created separately, but that's fine. We're cleaning up house. This is a lot of stuff that we've left untouched. Yeah. I had one other question about the bee biology. <coughs> you got some pollen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what about it? What about bee biology? So you mentioned in that episode that you were talking about how there are some of the, the I think, uh, forgive me if it was the drones or the, the worker bees, but they dislocate their wings and then they go into the hive and they buzz to heat it up. The heater bees, yes. So it got me to thinking later when I was editing the podcast, when you say they dislocate their wings, does that mean that they actually like take them right off? No, the wings are hooked together in the back oh. for, for honeybees. The, the wings hook together and that therefore that's how they fly. So then are they able to reconnect them somehow? I'm not sure about that. Curious. I don't know if they'll actually never be able to fly, spend their whole life in there or not. I, I don't know. All right. I just wondered because that's pretty sacrificial. Yeah. Yeah, because the honeybees have four wings, two on each side. And so when I think, I think hooked together means the two on each side are hooked together. So they, they bend as one. Right. Okay. That's what I think it means. Makes sense. I had a toy of a bee growing up and it's 
kind of how his wings were, but they weren't connected, really. No, he was a wasp. Never mind. All right. You gotta be. You gotta watch for B models. When we, I was at Georgia Tech, I got there right after they changed the mascot, and Buzz, Georgia Tech's mascot, was ranked the number one mascot in the U.S. of so the definition of an excellent mascot. But the old mascot on all the Georgia Tech material and all the merchandise had a stinger at both ends. And <laughs> <laughs> a, a pointy nose and a stinger on his tail. I was like, "What are you stupid, <laughs> dumb engineers?" <laughs> no, I like the newer version. Yeah. We had a lot in the outline for today. We probably can't cover all of it, but can we just cover all of the miscellaneous topics? We can, or we can save the miscellaneous topics for next time. Okay. Let's go with pound for pound, people put out 5,000 <laughs> times more heat than the sun. What? This is an unverified fact I learned on Facebook. So a Facebook friend got it from another Facebook friend who said that pound for pound, people put out a lot more heat than the sun does. So the sun puts out a tremendous amount of heat, but it's also really big. And the heat only comes from a tiny fraction of the sun. When you say by a tiny fraction of it, do you mean like... The inside, the inside, the center of the sun is that which is producing heat. The the mass of the sun does not actually produce heat. It radiates it fine, but doesn't actually make it. That makes sense. So that means that all the heat we release comes from the sun initially. When we are sweating, that's sunlight coming out of us. That's, when we get hot, that's sunlight. Our body temperature is sunlight. And apparently, we, um, we let out a lot of sunlight per pound, which is really amazing. Anyway, I had to look this one up, and I will figure it out. Yeah, I, I learned on our show that solar energy is star energy. So we're all basically star-powered. Yep. That is awesome. Absolutely right. Let's do the thing about whales. Okay, the one thing about whales was really caught my attention. This was cool. Another thing I learned on Facebook, and I went and looked at it. The, the link will be there in the show notes for you. But apparently, some, some people studying whale logs from the 1800s. So, you know, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. 18, he was a, a sailor in, I think, 1830s. And he, I think he wrote Moby Dick in 1840s. I might be 10 years off. but So, early 1800s, he was a sailor. And he was on the, the whaling hunt in the Pacific Ocean. And that's where the story Moby Dick comes from, which is an amazing story. But the ship's logs talked about harpoon rates, whale behavior, and all sorts of things like that. And what they found out was that very quickly, when man started hunting whales in the middle of the ocean, whales changed their behavior. They learned from each other and stopped doing what they were doing before. (laughs) And so harpoon strikes fell by half. Harpoon strikes? So Yeah, so in other words, maybe like when you throw a harpoon from the front of a, a whaling boat, Maybe half the time you hit the whale when all of a sudden you're only doing it one quarter of the time. Because it was like, you know, I know this trick and they do something you don't expect. And what they noticed that in the beginning, the whales would make a circle with their tails outwards and they swim in a circle with their tails pointing outwards and they flap their tails. And that was a defense against orcas. And so when threatened, the pod would form up a circle. But it didn't work against men. It was a great thing because all the whales got together in one place and we just send our boats out there and we kill all the whales. It was a disaster for the whales. Well, very shortly, they stopped doing that. And instead, they started swimming upwind because these are sailing ships. Oh, brilliant. And sailing ships go very slowly upwind and they can't go in a straight line. They have to tack back and forth. So the whales are like, you dumb people. We're just going to go this way and you can't catch us. Nah, 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 nah. That is insane. Okay, so if you had said Absolutely. whales would swim up current, I would have understood. But this is the ocean. Oh no, up 
wind. But so how do they know about the wind? I don't know. That's insane. That's so cool. I don't know. Maybe maybe they looked at which way the ship was pointing and went, I don't know. Either they could detect the wind or they could look at the ship and go some other direction. But where, And they taught each other. Very neat. And this whale knowledge spread from pack to pack to pack or pod to pod to pod. Wow. What on earth? I mean, this is crazy. Anyway, it is. So now they're talking about whale societies and whale knowledge and things like that, which is, okay, yeah, no, I'm not going to go there. But it was amazing. Okay, I, I don't know anything about the whale society. No, the whales are a society. Oh. The whales themselves. Scientists are treating them like, okay, whale society says this, and whale society teaches the whales to do that. Just like humans have a society, they're talking about <laughs> yeah. whales as if they're a society. Okay. For me, this is really interesting because I grew up in whaling country on eastern Long Island. I mean, a number of houses in the area had widow's watches on the top. So you build a three-story house, and on top is a little square cupola. It's called a widow's watch. This is where the wife of the captain, because you know the captain would have a lot of money, and they'd build these elegant houses in Sag Harbor and places like that. And the wife would spend her days up there looking out at sea, probably knitting or whatever, to see if her husband was going to come home or not. And the life of a sailor in the 19th century was not very long. And it was an extremely risky business. But if you made it, I mean, they would go to the Pacific Ocean from New England which means going all the way south around South America to hunt whales in a wooden ship with no GPS. Wow. And no antibiotics and on and on and on and on. So it's really usually like a two-year commitment. Mm. But if they did it and they got home, they'd be filthy rich from one voyage. That's why they did it. Wow. I took a class at a at University of Miami, PhD level class in marine biology. I don't remember what, what it was. But in this one section, the professor was talking about the whaling industry and he talked about Okay, they, they t- once they invented the steam cannon for harpoons, yeah. whales had no hope. Mm. So you don't need whaling ships to go out with a little guy throwing a, a spirit and then do the Nantucket sleigh ride sort of thing. No, you just take your big ship, which is now coal-powered and it's faster than the whale. You go up next to the whale and you shoot it in the head with a harpoon and pull it right onto the ship through the back door. But he was talking about all these different whale species. So the first thing they did is they, they targeted the right whale. It's the right whale because of the right whale to spear because it floats when it's dead. Other whales sink when they're dead. You don't want to spear that one. Oh. I'm going to spear the right one. And then the sperm whales. And then these whales. And he went through all these different species. Okay. They started targeting them in 1852. 1855, they're economically extinct. Oh, wow. There weren't enough of them to make it worth killing them. So they went to another whale species. In X number of years, they were economically extinct. And every single whale species, one after the other, boom, 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 to the point where we gave up on whaling. And right about that time was when, um, not Rockefeller, the oil guy. Oh, I um, know who you mean. It's yeah, yeah. Did you see The Men Who Shaped America? Mm-hmm. Love that miniseries. Anyway, that guy, that was right when he started inventing kerosene. And kerosene replaced whale oil as the lighting oil of choice in American homes because whales were going extinct. I, I was just trying to find the name. Yeah, yeah, I got Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and Nikola Tesla. Yeah, I'm not finding the, the oil guy. Carnegie. Yeah. He's a uh, uh, Rockefeller's in New York. Carnegie was Pennsylvania. Do you think that from reading the account of, in Genesis of creation and Adam and Eve, it seemed to me growing up, that one of those things that happened due to the curse and the the enmity put between creatures and mankind and the fear that animals had in opposition to man, I wondered if something kind of like lost 
in the scenario, but may be true, was that animals originally could have communicated verbally to an extent with people. And that would explain how Adam and Eve were not scared out of their minds that they were talking to a serpent. Uh, because it was just a, like a thing that they could do. Maybe when Adam was naming the species, he's talking to a lion about what it is to be a lion. And then he says, okay, well, you're a lion. Hmm. I, I would say no. Okay. Because it would take quite a bit of cognitive capacity for an animal to be able to converse. Even if even on a simple level, that doesn't make much sense. But also, I'm not going to say that Adam was talking to a snake. He was talking to Satan. Okay. Maybe, and he's called a serpent. Okay, fine. Maybe that's just a bad name, a nickname, or a derogatory name. Or maybe he took the form of a snake. Or, on, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, the old, the old creation depictions of uh, there's a snake in a tree and the snake has legs because God hadn't cursed it yet to have no legs. Ha ha ha. Well, maybe. So I'm not convinced it was actually a snake snake. It could have been one of several options. But even if it was a snake... Adam's brand new. He doesn't know what's weird yet. That's true. I thought about that possibility as well. I mean, he, he's had no, he has no prior experience. Why would he think anything is weird or not weird? I mean, remember we talked about calendars? I mean, what do you think the first time the sun went down? Dude, it got dark, man. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. And the next, next morning, the sun came, hey, the sun came up over there. What is going on? So, it's on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> How did it get there? It's fascinating. Okay, Rob. Yes, sir. I, I'm not going to say, you know, like I'm going to die on this hill, but I like the idea that we could talk with animals so much so I really hope that it is true in heaven. And hypothetically speaking, why? Well, if you can talk to animals at the Garden of Eden, then you can also talk to animals in heaven. If the children are going to see the lion, the lamb and the wolf and the lamb, you know, relaxing together a child can stick their hand into a bird of vipers and be fine. You know, it's one thing that you just have peace among all the creatures, but it also just is interesting to consider. Not like they, they can hold up an intellectual conversation like a human being would, but hypothetically speaking, if birds can squawk at each other and they communicate in a, a rudimentary way, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've read the Chronicles of Narnia too much, but I, I just think that the possibility is compelling. Ah. <sighs> Not, not, not that we have a reason to believe it. Just I can't say no, but I can say that if something is conversing, that's too much intelligence. It sounds like moral accountability. Okay. The one thing that separated humans is our ability to communicate with words like God communicates with words. That's a pretty good explanation. Okay, and mate, that's what separates us from animals. In fact, I've probably said this before. I mean, when you look at a chimpanzee, it looks like it's made in our image. But spiritually, they're dumb as a box of rocks. There's no spiritual component to their existence. They're actually our animals. And yet we, even if we look like chimpanzees, we have something extremely different, which is a soul and the ability to communicate with God, the creator. Have you seen The Onion reported that scientists successfully teach gorillas they're going to die someday? <laughs> the Onion? <laughs> How do they do this? <laughs> okay, this was a joke, but it's a pretty awesome joke. I'm going to drop the link into the show notes. It, it, you know what The Onion is, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay, good. All right, well, let's move on to the main topic then. Well, wait, how do they do it? <laughs> What's the joke? What's the punchline, man? You leave me hanging. <laughs> okay, so 
the Tulane University researchers say that a gorilla, you know, a full-grown adult gorilla, is now able to experience the crippling fear of impending death previously only accessible to humans. Because, you know, using basic tenets of like teaching the gorillas how to count and how to say hi and goodbye and you're tired and you're hungry, they also spoon-fed and repeated the idea of you exist, you were born, and now you get old and die. And they repeated this over and over again until the gorilla could understand that he was going to die someday hmm. and feel bad about it. In some ways, it would be nice to be a gorilla because then you never have to worry about dying. <laughs> you wouldn't have to know. You got some girls, you got some bananas. Maybe you live in a zoo, have a nice cage, you don't have to worry about predators. Life's good, man. And then you stop breathing. It's true. Okay. You know, that was the longest warm-up we've ever had for an episode. We could probably just talk for another half an hour and not even get into our topic. Yeah, or if we did, we could easily talk for you. I think unintentionally, this could be the longest episode ever. We could probably talk for three hours. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the pollen getting to us. Or or the fact that it's been raining, so there's hardly any pollen in the air. Mm -hmm. All right, so what is our topic for today? One of the things that we've wanted to talk about, our sci-fi pet peeves. Things that people do in sci-fi is they write into the story or the characters do or things they say or the technologies they have at their disposal that I'm not complaining. I, I like sci-fis and enjoy sci-fis, but come on, they, they do a bunch of corny or cracked things that, that, that can't possibly be scientific and we all know better. Or maybe we don't know better. Maybe we didn't know better when the movie was made, but now we know better. Sci-fi pet peeve number one is unlimited energy or no accounting for energy in the sci-fi world. So you have a ship that jumps into hyperspace. Well, how much energy does that take? Or you move something, or uh, some factory does something amazing in record time to, to produce a new spaceship or something. Well, how much heat did that produce? You know, where does the energy in the sci-fi world come from? And the best example that I, I could think of was something I actually put on Facebook back into 2014. And I thought it was so funny. On fizz.org, they had an article about some, some scientists who calculated how much energy Elsa from Frozen would have had to channel through her little body in order to freeze her kingdom. <laughs> so they, they said, well, Hans Christian Andersen modeled this kingdom after this fjord. And they, they calculated the surface area of the fjord. They said, okay, now we're going to freeze the fjord to X, X amount deep in ice, how much energy would it require? Had, how much energy does she have to suck out of the air? And clearly it went through her body, right? And that's the whole point of the thing, right? <laughs> and they calculated 115 Hiroshima atomic bombs. <laughs> that's problematic. <laughs> A little problematic. Thermodynamics is no friend of sci-fi. And so I, I took it a step further. I said, okay, Let's assume that she weighs 100 pounds, or let's round it up to 50 kilograms, because, you know, Disney princesses tend to be petite after all, right? So let's say 50 kilograms, and that, that'd be um, 100 and, say, 2.2 pounds per kilogram. It's just 110 pounds or so. And let's assume she's made of 100% water, which is generous, because water has a higher heat capacity than most other body parts. But let's just do water. Let's say the, the heat capacity of water, 25 degrees Celsius, is 4.1813 joules per gram Kelvin. Starting at 32 degrees or zero Celsius. So the water is water, but it's at the freezing point. And we're just going to bring it 
to to freeze the water at 32 degrees. So we haven't actually changed the temperature, but we froze it. We turned it to ice. That requires 80 calories per gram. Okay. Well, a calorie in heat is uh, 1,000 heat calories is one food calorie. So we say, oh, I ate 1,000 calories today. Actually, you ate, ate a million heat calories. But looking at all these numbers, yeah, her body temperature would have risen 27.7 billion degrees Kelvin or Celsius. <laughs> 27 billion degrees. <laughs> Where'd that energy go, man? Oh, someone replied, Rob, it's magic. <laughs> now, that is the explanation, but, but really? Uh, well, you know, that reminds me of how in the Marvel movies with the character Doctor Strange by Benedict Cumberbatch, they explain that he and his type of sorcerers yes. are pulling energy from an alternate dimension. Yes, that is a, a solution, is it not? And dumping energy to the other dimension. Yeah, it's, it's okay what happens behind the curtain. Nobody needs to know if you're wiping out another universe by dropping <laughs> <laughs> energies unknown into their cosmos. Can you imagine being in the other universe? Oh no, it's happening again! <laughs> It's raining fire from who knows where. Where does this come from? That's why the weather is so unpredictable. Yeah, so not accounting for thermodynamics is one of my biggest pet peeves in sci-fi. Good one. And there's a lot of examples of abuse. Like they, they can't explain where they conjure up the power to run something like the Death Star. You know, it just does. Oh, give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Second one. I'm sorry. It's warp drives. I wondered, this one has been something that I've, I've always had a niggling feeling that it was just hand-wavy science fiction. Yeah. There's a YouTube video I saw maybe a year ago. Warp drives do nothing for you. So even at the highest warp ever attained by any Star Trek spaceship, he's showing a picture of the solar system. Okay, here's the speed of light. Here's the speed of an Apollo spacecraft. You know, it would take you forever to get to Pluto. At the speed of light, it takes you a couple hours to get to Pluto. Okay, now let's go warp. And so you watch the video, and here's the Enterprise going at warp one, warp two, warp three, warp four. And you realize all of a sudden that even at warp speeds, Pluto is very far away. Sure, maybe you can get there in a couple of minutes instead of a couple of hours. That's just Pluto. You're still in the solar system. (laughs) <laughs> so, so the energy requirements for making a warp drive would be incredible and you're going to put that power generation system on a tiny little spaceship all the dilithium crystals captain okay yo come on man where does the energy come from i love the thought i think it's really cool i hope one day we might build one but you're talking about you're gonna to have to use elsa's power to power a p going at warp speed <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well. There's also the conundrum of the time passing. Like, even if you could do the drive, there was the example of Ender's Game that brought this to my attention. Oh, favorite book ever. And the sequel, the character Ender travels across space, and by the time he arrives at his destination, which doesn't feel like it took very long to him, his siblings have grown up. Yes. They're much older, and he's a young man still. You know? Yeah, he and his sister had traveled a lot together for a while, and then... One of them settled down and he traveled more. And then she went to visit him 
and he settled down and they ended up at approximately the same age when they finally met but at one point they're like 50 years apart yeah it's kind of cool it's cool but it's also scary dangerously sad yeah <laughs> i could see stories going sideways all right so the next one you got here is noise in space noise in space yes star wars oh stop man oh man space is silent so 2001 space odyssey stanley kubrick's masterpiece yeah it was silent in space low budget well he did it right though they tried really hard to be scientifically accurate as they're talking about aliens putting pylons on the moon to get us to our next level of evolution okay whatever but at least it's physically they tried to to mimic it but pretty much nothing since then does now the um the abyss is that amazon yes the, the amazon show uh miniseries the abyss they do quiet space almost almost because when they're in battles you hear the 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 machine guns going brr, 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 and you're outside looking at the ship and you're hearing the machine gun rounds like no no it would be quiet from this angle but it's okay you know i i, I let that one slide because see basically it works like this if a show was good enough, I have a willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you do, so, if the show was not good enough, I will tear it apart like Stargate, <laughs> things like that. So noise in space is a problem, but I roll with it anyway because it's fun. Whatever, unless they really mess something up, which sometimes people do. Lately, people have been really excited about sound on Mars. Would sound on Mars be relatively the same as Earth's or sound thinner, you know, heavier? Oh, no, no, no. The atmosphere is so incredibly thin that even if you, you put a speaker outside at full blast, I bet you couldn't hear from any distance. Wow. It'll propagate. Oh, I say a thin atmosphere is going to propagate high frequency or low frequency, probably low frequency. I don't remember. I should be able to think about this right now, and I'm going to guess low, and I'm probably wrong, but I think it will propagate low because it's moving more air molecules, but there's not many air molecules to move. So, yeah. Okay, then. Mars is essentially silent. You might feel something through your feet. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. That kind of ruins one of my favorite movies, The Martian. I'm just going to have to tell myself it works anyway. Yeah, but you remember the, um, the one thing that the author said that he took liberty with was the sandstorm. Uh-huh. So, yeah, there are sandstorms, but there's not enough energy in those sandstorms said rip things apart, knock things over. And he said, that's the one thing that, you know, he made that part up just to set the story up. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of rips a hole in the whole story because without that, you don't have a Martian. That's right. All right, another pet peeve. Huge pet peeve. Guns that can't shoot straight. <laughs> Come on. You're telling me you can build a Death Star and you can't put something in a guy's hand where he can shoot somebody else accurately? <laughs> Stop. Just... <laughs> everyone's shooting from the hip with a short thing <laughs> why didn't you invent something where you can actually accurately hit something i mean david could accurately hit goliath in the forehead with a rock and a sling and you have this advanced technology and you're missing yeah no 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 so maybe the gun would even autocorrect or like lock on target and, and wield it with a few degrees and that's that's actually part of my next part but star wars the movie stargate all right, they blew it in the first scene when one, someone said, we've carbon dated this unknown metal, and I slapped my head. I said, it's metal. It's not carbon. Carbon's a non-metal. <laughs> How can you radiometrically date something that you don't know the history of or what it started with? And if it's carbon, it's not going to date to even at the maximum level greater than 70,000 years. And on and on and on. So that was the beginning. 
And at the end of the show, the end of the, the movie Stargate, they're going to get attacked by this alien a spaceship. And so instead of staying in the, the rock pyramid-like structure, they run out into the middle of the desert and jump in a hole. And sort of like, like the sand is piled up in a crater and they're in there and they're pew, pew, pew shooting. And this super advanced alien spaceship that can fly at warp speeds can't hit the people in the open in a hole in a desert. And it's missing. And I'm like, come on, stop. Just stop, stop, stop. Anyway, guns that can't shoot straight are um, annoying. Well, on that note, yeah? ninjas and your crime fighting, your kicking, your martial arts always work they always work man even the bad guys martial arts always work just not as well as the good guys martial arts but guns don't so the martial artist comes upon the guy with the pistols he shoots shoot boom 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 he can't hit them three feet away and then they kick the guns out of his hands we watched one of the uh, early arnold schwarzenegger movies when i was in college sitting in a fraternity house no beer was involved we'd have we had a dry house but we're watching this movie and someone just start, started saying, one. We didn't know what he's saying. Two. <laughs> he was counting the number of people Arnold Schwarzenegger killed. <laughs> and it got up to like 50. A guy jumps out of a corn patch. Boom, 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 boom. And it's like, how come he can kill so many people and never himself die? All right, whatever. It's... Okay, so my next big pet peeve is not understanding or having no concept of big data. What do you mean you can't find this person on this planet? What about their banking records? <laughs> what about, what do you mean you don't know a storm is coming? What do you mean you, don't, you can't estimate something? I mean, your computers will tell you everything. Now, granted, back in the 1950s, sci-fi, you know, they didn't predict computers today. But why don't we apply what we know today and say, think ahead, okay, in the future, computers can be like this. So usually what it is, it's a three-dimensional something and people are, having their hands and they're moving, they're waving their hands in the air and they're trying to act like they're looking at this and they CGI something in front of them. Yeah, that's, that's kind of hokey too because the computer would do it for them. They would never have to actually manipulate anything. <laughs> All right, sorry. I'm, I'm not trying to be too sarcastic here. No, it's a fair point. But computer power, man, come on. I have to calculate the jump to height to, to light speed. You don't have to calculate anything, man. Tell the computer, I want to go over there. Yeah. And in a, you know, a fraction of a millisecond, it has it calculated and it goes, okay, boop, and you're gone. Good point. And then they have you know, a computer for this and a computer for that and a computer for this on a spaceship. It's like, that's not the way it's going to work. All right, another pet peeve. Droids that can't speak human. It's true, though. I didn't think about that until you mentioned this. I mean, without C-3PO, R2-D2 wouldn't be able to communicate with anyone. What? <laughs> it's a robot. Give him a voice. He can make sounds. Oh, when he speaks this language, and so C-3PO, oh, R2 says blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you see, people will converse with a robot. The robot goes, oh, what do you mean? As if the, the human understands the robot and the robot understands the human. What? Anyway, it makes for, it makes for good cinematography and fun movies. And I'm, I love watching Star Wars and all sorts of things like that. But if you just stop and think about it, what I need is a droid who understands the, the binary language of uh, moisture evaporators. What? right (laughs) why can any machine in the world not know a binary language of anything i mean come on this is so trivial so but in the 70s okay fine but they continue to do stuff like that today and just makes you slap your head that is pretty sad but true all right another pet peeve 
Mm-hmm. Aliens that look like humans. This one is one of mine. Like this actually gets under my skin because uh, in any in any example like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yep. There's a. Uh, is the actor's name Dave Bautista? Yes. Yeah, so he's a great big, brawny, gray, tattooed, scarred guy with oddly colored eyeballs. Yes. But, it, dude, he, he's Dave Bautista. Yeah. They didn't really even try. True. But almost every alien is bilaterally symmetric with arms and legs, hands and feet, two eyeballs, two ears. Human-like expressions. Oh, but this one has pointy ears, and he's red. This one has pointy ears, and she's blue. Ooh, I guess it makes them different species. Yeah, okay. I, I know that they're limited, and the, the problem is now that we've had so much sci-fi, there's very little that they can do with that kind of a character. It's just they're starting to repeat, 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 because it's all, it's all been done. All the human-like things have been done. You know, Vulcans, they have pointy ears. Mm-hmm. Oh, but so do the Romulans. Oh, so the Klingons. Maybe the Klingons don't, but they got a wrinkle in their forehead. <laughs> if evolution, because all these shows are evolution-based, right? Yeah. Evolution is a driver of these things. You're not going to get humanoids. You're going to get mossoids, octopoids. You're going to get things that look like clouds. You're going to get all sorts of you know, very strange. Now, now, granted, Star Trek has done some of this stuff. And that one episode when um, they go to this this mining colony and these miners are getting killed by these these blob-like creatures that, that will attack them and eat them with acid. And then they'll run away by eating through the rocks. And all these rocks are honeycombed. And they keep on destroying these little circles, these, these globe things they find. Well, then, you know, the Spock and Kirk figure out, oh, those are the eggs of these creatures. They're killing the eggs. And and, and Spock does a Vulcan mind meld with these things. He's pain. It was one of the worst actings ever. That was one. But almost every other alien ever. I mean, this, the Star Wars uh, cantina scene, the, the Star Trek intergalactic congress, almost everything is, is a humanoid. And it's sad. But then if the alien creature has three or four limbs or more, then they're more animalistic. They, they're more... They're just monster-like, or they're horse-like. You know, they're they look like a fish on two legs that you can ride like a camel. Yes, but then you get to like Larry Niven's Ringworld. What's that? It's a very interesting concept with adult material that I didn't know. Oh, okay. One of my Christian friends in college was talking about it a lot. So a couple of years ago, I was like, "Oh, I think it's time for me to read Ringworld." And it's just an an idea that an advanced alien civilization built a ring around a star that's about the same distance as Earth is from the star, but it's flat. It's a flat ring with walls on the sides. And the surface area, I don't remember what surface, it's like a million Earths in surface area. And then as they're exploring this, they realize that, oh, look, there's all the continents of Earth in that spot right there. That Then what's that shit? That must be the continents from another planet, another, another, and there's you know, millions of, of planets worth of surface area. And one of the characters has three legs. I bet he looks like a hassock. He's flat on top. He's round with three legs. And the legs are like, they, they go out and then down and they're pointy. It's I'm totally not humanoid at all. And it was cool in that sense. Like, oh, here's something totally new. So this this thing has different strengths and weaknesses because of the way he's built. And he gets in different situations than a human would get in. Different ways to defend himself than a human has. And it, it's just really interesting exploring that. Well, good on them. Yeah. There's one example. All right. Another pit peeve. Huge pet peeve. When the bad guy 
turns out to be bigger and badder than anyone else in the galaxy. <laughs> so what was the guy from inexplicably so yes like, just like not invincibility powers but nigh to invincibility powers for no apparent reason even though they got skin yeah what's the character's name the giant guy in one of the latest star star wars's was it snope yeah or snoke snoke that's what it was yes yeah, i think it's snopes <clears throat> snoke but that was such a dumb character i, I don't ever want to see that movie again yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember which one it was, honestly. The Last Jedi. Who is this this giant, super powerful guy that comes out of nowhere? Mm-hmm. You no, know, sure, he's the Emperor. Someone said, okay, fine. But, you know, they could have hinted at it somehow. Another one was uh, Thanos. He's just too powerful. <laughs> yes. Just too strong. Just And, and then again, we have uh, thermodynamic issues here. These characters are channeling energy through their bodies. That's an awful lot of energy, guys. I mean, it'd be hard enough to do a small miracle for a human without turning to crisp. But here's Thanos who can do all this unbelievable. I mean, even Thor can't beat up Thanos. What is this? It's just weird. Yeah, he needs a very special magical axe to get through Thanos. And the funny thing, too, is is that if you pay attention, he 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 plunges the axe through Thanos' body armor and clothes. I mean, why don't you just go for one of the parts of his body that doesn't isn't covered in armor, like his arms <laughs> or his head? You went to all this trouble because it's really hard to pierce Thanos's body, and then you have to use the sharp blade through his body armor. Why? Make it worse. Now, at the end of Men in Black, when they uh, they zoom up on the cat who has a necklace, and the necklace is a galaxy. Cool. And then they zoom out, and our galaxy becomes a marble. And they gave them marbles that these giant aliens are playing. And they don't look... Actually, they probably have two arms, two legs, and two eyeballs. I don't remember, but they don't look at all like humans. I thought that was pretty cool. So they're not uber-powerful. They're just in their realm, our normal alien-like things. It just happens that they're much bigger than any galaxy. So this whole Thanos and Snoke and things like that, it'd be like um, a molecule versus a flea versus a fly versus a dog versus a person versus a lion versus Thor versus Thanos. You know, this whole chain of, of power. But it gets to the point where the, the uppermost levels of the power structure are, are just kind of ridiculous. The other one that really bugged me, otherwise I liked the movie until the end, was Captain Marvel. Really? She, she became uber-powerful. Yeah. I mean, she became godlike powerful. It's true. Well, godlike powerful in energy that can both give her limitless invincibility, but also fly and destroy stuff like cosmic laser beams. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it doesn't mean that she can create worlds. It means that she can only destroy worlds and travel through space. But she was given too many of those superhero things things she has all of them she can fly fast she's got the laser eye she's really strong i bet she can go invisible you know i mean pick a a, a superhero thing and she can probably do it and, and at that point you throw up your hands up what's left the, the, there's nothing else to do this the end of the sci-fi world and anyway i just didn't like that so much you're not wrong but i'm not trying to be picky everyone i love sci-fi this is a list of our sci-fi pet peeves not what we like about sci-fi I'm not a film critic anymore, but would you say superhero as a genre is 
akin to sci-fi. It certainly uses sci-fi all the time. Yeah, I, I would link them together in, in a lot of ways. One of my favorites growing up was Superman. I really liked Superman a lot. I like it that you know they make homage to he is a Christ-like character, kind of like Moses, kind of like Samson, not exactly. And in the old days, the, the stories were cleaner. I actually have a example of a, a hardbound book copy of 1940s and 50s Superman Sunday comic strips. Yes. And, you know, so the old stuff were pretty clean. One of the things that was great about him was that he could only jump over a tall building in a single bound. He, he couldn't fly around the world and, and stop the earth and turn back time. So save Louis Lane. No. <laughs> and so if he was, you know, fighting a great big mechanical robot guy, he, he actually could get beat up by the mechanical robot too. And it would t- like, he could, he could really get pinned down. Yeah. Anyway, I, I liked the idea when you didn't make the Superman God, you know, he, and you don't need Captain Marvel to be that overpowered. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good pet peeve. So another one is when the writers attempt to be smart and fail, it would be uh, better which happens a lot. just to make a fantasy movie, not a sci-fi movie. It'd be better to not take yourself so seriously. Like we've carbon dated this unknown metal Ugh. or, you know, interstellar, which we reviewed a couple of months ago. Great movie until you get to the 5d library thing. And what, uh, huh? Ah, what? And, and the, the fact that you need a, you would need a, a Saturn V like rocket to get off any one of the planets and they need one to get off of Earth, but the other planets they could take this little little jumper shuttle thing. Why don't they use that to get off the Earth? And and things like that. Overthinking it until you fail. So something like um I know this is more fantasy than sci fi. Pandora. I love that movie. Some people hate it. I don't know if I've seen that one. No, okay, it's not it's not called They Went to Pandora. You've seen it. The big blue people. Blue people. Uh Avatar. Avatar. Yeah, okay. Love the whole thing. I love the concept. I love the fact that at first it looked like cartoony and really dumb, but after a little bit into the movie, you, you just forgot about it. It didn't look so dorky anymore after a while. And then he, then all of a sudden they're back and he's a, a person again. You're like, oh yeah, that, that, that thing looks kind of dorky. And it wasn't so... And they, you know, they had the, the mountains that floated. That was cool. But if they tried to do that in a real sci-fi movie and explain it all, it would have fallen apart. <laughs> Just let it be yes. and let it happen. But don't say, oh, this is because of the, um, you know, the second law of thermodynamics applied to the uh, quantum space physicality. Or, you know, someone says something like that and they, they're usually just talking nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Another pet peeve, cloaking devices. He's cloaked. Oh, come on, man. You're not going to take this one away from me, are you? What are you cloaking? This is a pretty good, this is a personal favorite. Sure. What are you cloaking? Visible light? Wonder Woman's plane. Well, that's just invisible. That's made of glass or something like that. That's different. Mm. But are you cloaking mass? Yes. Oh, really? Anything I can cloak. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> Timmy, absolutely undetectable in any way, shape, or form. That means you don't exist. Everything from the Death Star to Harry Potter's cloak. You know, the invisibility cloak. I, I love it. Well, well, if you're only making it invisible to visible light, okay. You can bend light around you fine. But can you bend x-rays? Oh. Can you bend gamma rays? Can you bend a wall or, the, or a planet? I mean, what are, exactly are you cloaking? Now, one of the Star Trek movies, uh, Search for Spock, or I don't remember which one it was, but they, um, the photon torpedoes, and they had changed them out so they could detect 
something. And the, the Klingons are cloaked, but then they realize, wait a minute, they're on impulse power, which means that they're leaving ions behind. And so they shoot the proton cannon, the photon torpedo out, and it, it starts sniffing and it finds their exhaust and follows it all the way up into the engine and blows up. Nice. Was that, was that the Wrath of Khan? I don't remember. It's been so long since I saw it, but I just, okay, that was, that was cool. So the cloaking actually failed because it was only cloaking light. So you couldn't see it, but it didn't mean you couldn't detect it in other ways. I don't remember. May have been the Wrath of Khan. I don't remember that in the Wrath of Khan. I know that they, it, it probably wasn't because I, I don't remember them having Klingons in the Wrath of Khan. All right. True story. All right, listening audience, I'm about to share with you something that very few people in the whole world know. But I was a lad growing up in the Hamptons. You were young once? And my mother, I was, yes. Oh, okay. Yes, back in the ancient days. My mother started a typing service. And she bought one of the first portable computers, a K-Pro 4. I think it had a five-inch green and white screen and two floppy drives, two five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy drives, man. This thing was, I mean, it weighed like 30 or 40 pounds, but it was portable, you see? And she advertised, and people would come to our house. Howard Cosell came to our house. You know, the world, ABC's Worldwide of Sports, Worldwide, wow. Wide World. Yeah, this is Howard Cosell. And he really did talk like that. Mm. And he read a letter to Lee Iacocca, the chairman of Chrysler. But no one else had computers except my mom. So he came to our house. That was really cool. But something else she did, she typed out the screenplay for one of the Star Trek movies. So the authors in the Hamptons, I mean, Steven Spielberg lived in the Hamptons. He was actually a customer of one of the guys in, in our church owned a video store in East Hampton, and Steven Spielberg was one of his customers. He'd come and rent, he would rent cassettes nice. to go watch a movie. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> anyway, these guys came and they, they gave her all the handwritten notes and she typed it up. You know, you know, in one of the Star Trek movies, Kirk has a son. Yes, that, that's a Rathacon. And he dies. Wait, spoiler. No, come on, man. 30-year-old movies. I think, it's Rath, I think it's a search for Spock. They, they went to the Genesis planet, and Spock had grown back from a, a, a cell or whatever, a baby, whatever, and so now he's alive again. And in the next movie, they're going to go back in time to save Kirk's son. So I get into the movie theater knowing what the plot is. I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm telling all my friends, this is going to be awesome, man. Uh, and they go back in time, all right? Yep, 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 to save the whales. <laughs> no what'd you do you ruined the whole thing anyway so no, <clears throat> you're right <laughs> sorry total aside my next pet peeve lack yes. of character depth you think that this is generally true about science fiction in general kind of thing well a lot of sci-fi is low budget mm. but one of the things a lot of sci-fi movies do is they try to paper over acting deficiencies and writing deficiencies with special effects. Oh, uh, it makes sense. I just, I just finished watching WandaVision. Oh, yeah. Yeah, audience is learning a lot about me. They might even be, so, he watches secular. Yeah, anyway, I <laughs> loved it because of the artistry. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of depth to the characters. That's right. That's the whole point of it was to, was to develop character depth. And at the end, it was a big battle and all the lights and flashing and sci-fi, you know, zip, 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 things. But in the beginning, there was nothing. There was no magic. There was no sci-fi. It was a mystery. What is going on? And over several episodes, it built. I watched um, 
uh, one of the Avenger movies, Endgame or whatever it was. I don't remember what it was. Oh, it might have been Winter Soldier. And it starts off with all the Avengers in a snowy forested thing, and they're fighting. It's like the opening scene. And doing all these amazing things, and there's snowmobiles, and there's jeeps, and there's people running, and smash, and bang, boom, wah! And I'm like, this movie's going to stink. Because <laughs> yes. they started off with a, a flashbang, and then it's literally, now what? And sure enough, three quarters of the way through the movie, I'm bored stiff. It's like, come on, just get, get it over with, man. It's just dragging on and on and on. And it had some big battle at the end. Okay, fine. But it's, it's that pacing that is required. Now, I love the Iron Man series. I don't like the main actor necessarily as a person, but I really do like the Iron Man series because of getting into the soul of the main character. And he's struggling. And he's, that's why I like the original, the original Spider-Mans. They were good for those, yeah. Because he was a human being and he's wrestling and we were looking at him and the whole the whole Spider-Man concept is this regular old guy and, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and all that kind of stuff. And he's learning all these great lessons, but it's not true in a lot of uh, sci-fi. This char- um, character depth, oh my. That scene, that, that supposed love scene. In what movie? Between Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Mannequin Skywalker. <laughs> and if you, if you watch that scene, you can see her eyes. And I, I literally think in her brain, she's saying, don't act. Don't act. If you even blink, you'll out-act this guy and he will look worse. Don't even move anything. Just stand like a statue because if you do anything, it's going to be clear that you know how to act and he doesn't. <laughs> and it's the most, it gets sang, it's everywhere. It's like, oh, I'm dying. Just, anyway, you need good characters. It's not about science. It's about an exploration of the human condition. I hadn't thought about this until you mentioned Natalie Portman, but she was the character Jane Foster, I think, in the Thor series as uh, yeah. Thor's first girlfriend. And, you know, those movies are not the greatest examples of character development. The first Thor movie was dumb. I couldn't stand it. Later on, they got better. But the first one just... Well, they were still trying to figure it out. And... Was it about character development? And they did really well with his brother, Loki. Yes. So he became a fan favorite. Then it was in, I think it was uh, Thor in the Dark World, that he's still with Jane and they have to save the world together and yeah. things like that. I like that one, by the way. That was, that, that was a good one. I agree. And one of the th- cleverness of that movie, I think that they were, while they were still figuring it out, and they were willing to give Thor and Jane at the time a little bit more depth to their romance in a superhero story. You got to keep in mind that superheroes getting romantically involved with uh, is tricky because where are you going to take that if the characters just keep coming back for more and more movies and you tr- you got to develop their relationship? It's very tricky yes. to try and tell that story for movies on end. I think that Marvel is still trying to figure that out. But at the time, they have a cutscene after the credits rolled where Jane realizes Thor's just landed on the rooftop of her apartment building. So she runs up there and embraces him and gives him a kiss. Well, it was actually clever that they didn't use Natalie Portman for that shot. They used Chris Hemsworth's wife because from behind, she looked an awful lot like Natalie Portman. Oh, that's funny. Chris is Thor and he has his wife run up to him and embrace him and give him a kiss. That is in the cutscene. 
it's awesome. You can't tell it's, it's not Natalie Portman? You can't tell. Oh, that's funny. She, from behind, she just looked enough like her. Cool. So, so it was a very authentic kiss, Thor and his girlfriend, <laughs> his wife. That's funny. Very well played. All right. So I'm done with my list of pet peeves. Yeah. You, you have something to share for yourself. Okay. It's not a big one. It's just another one on the list. Okay. It seems like a lot of the movies are dabbling with how can we make more excuses for these things. You mean special effects? <laughs> yeah. So part of the time, though, is when you don't want to use the same old, same old, well, this is science explanation. This is, this is technology explanation then you can say that in this context, the, this is magical. The, it, but there's also stories that are supposedly magical that are using things that are supposedly technology. Genre blending. Yes. So in Harry Potter's stories, for example, yes. they definitely make magic look scientific. And then in Star Wars, they make science look magical. Interesting. So, so you know, it, it just kind of muddies the waters of think. And I appreciate the stark quality of Star Trek that they usually stay away from the notion of something magical. Do you, I, I'm, I'm guessing there's examples in some of the shows where they go into the realm of magic, but I can't recall any. Especially, especially in the original uh, Star Treks. This woman has all these powers and then Kirk realizes, oh, she's actually blind and she's wearing this, this very uh, sensitive mesh of wire that's helping her see and she doesn't have power at all or you know why would god need a spaceship (laughs) classic kirk lines (laughs) yeah so the early earlier star treks would be we like that very much keeping it science as much as possible you know they've invented dilithium crystals and warp drives and things like that but at least it's trying to stick to rational thought well those are our pet peeves good episode hope you enjoyed that audience yeah and i'm sure you can all agree (laughs) It's probably someone that we actually didn't even cover that someone else would say, yeah, but what about this? But see, I love cinematography. I love being transported to a different place with different ideas and thoughts. That's just one of my favorite things, which is probably why I've watched so many World War II tank movies or submarine movies. Man, I eat up at all, all the World War II submarine movies. It's got to have a balance. If it's magic, it's magic. Fine. Just like you said. If it's science, let it be science. And get some good, get some good special effects and let's hear the good music. But let's make sure that there's some character development here because that's the entire thing. I'm trying to explore my life as a human being. And if you don't let me do that, your movie's just boring. Good to say it better myself. Thanks so much for joining us on this quest. This is not science fiction, by the way. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with your family and friends. If you want to dig deeper into the pet peeves as subjects of the side items that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, then you'll find links to everything that Rob and I discussed in the show notes on our website. This podcast has a website. That's nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 49. The show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone. And you should also check out Rob's other project, Biblical Genetics. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments. If you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox.
feel like we should throw in something like warp speed ahead. <laughs> Grab a soundbite from, you know, the, the door sound. Captain, <laughs> where should like we that. go next? Over there. <laughs> That'd be excellent. Aye, aye, Captain. Do, 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 do. 